play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Emily Noakes and Bree McKenna from the Seattle-based band Taco Cat. is a monumental moment for your last meal. It's the first time I featured two guests on a single episode, and I feel like I just gave birth to twins. <laughs> is this what it's like? Emily Noakes sings and plays tambourine in the band. She's also the music editor for Bust Magazine, which is one of my all-time favorites, and Brie McKenna plays bass and sings. And I do mic level checks before I start an interview. Let me just make sure we're all the same here. Uh, what did you have for breakfast today? I had um, a handful of goldfish crackers, some almonds, some chocolate Teddy Grahams. <laughs> oh, and a sugar cookie that was like the last one. You're on summer break and your mom's at work. <laughs> <I know. laughs> we don't have any food in the house. Learning that Emily eats preschool snacks for breakfast was the best thing to come out of that level check. Producer Aaron can attest that the levels were a mess and he had to fix them all in post. So thank you very much, Producer Aaron. Happy to oblige. Yes. But level fixing aside, this is a very fun episode. It's sparkly and colorful and giggly and covered in sugar. Not only will you learn the history of the great American s'more, but we will break down each of the components with Jeff Miller, who teaches a food and culture class at Colorado State University. So you're going to learn the history of marshmallows and chocolate and that the graham cracker was originally created as a health food. Sylvester Graham was a student at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and he was thrown out of school for committing a sexual assault. And as he sat at home trying to figure out what would make him do such a horrendous thing, he came to the idea that it's because people probably ate too much meat. And that's how the graham cracker was born. What a beautiful story. But on a more innocent s'more note, I take Emily and Bree down into the bowels of the radio station where we have a little vending machine store and instruct them to make a s'more out of anything they can find. The microwaving of the Rice Krispie Treat worked really well. Things are getting a little messy, but that's (laughs) great news. (laughs) All right, so that's dessert. But as any mother of twins will tell you, in order to have dessert, you have to have dinner. And tonight's dinner is Philly cheesesteaks, otherwise known as cheesesteaks when you're in Philadelphia. I chat with the owners of Pat's and Gino's, arguably the country's most famous and rival cheesesteak shops. What is it like to be like, quote, the cheesesteak king? I mean, I'm sure everybody knows you. It's funny because people just equate me with a cheesesteak. And and (laughs) it's like, you know, if I'm walking down the street, yo, Frank, give me a cheese with onions, cuz. But I'm an accomplished, classically trained French chef. You know, I'm more than just that. I can sail a boat. I do more than just flip (laughs) cheesesteaks. I used to speak French. I don't know what happened to me. As you can hear, we have a lot of ground to cover today. But first, my conversation with Emily Noakes and Brie McKenna of Taco Cat. Taco Cat has been a band for 11 years. 
this sounds like such a cheesy Oprah kind of question, but like, what's your secret? Because I know, <laughs> you know, it's hard for a lot of bands to stay together. The same reason it's hard for couples to stay together and friends to always. It's like, right. you know, a bunch of people trying to be creative together and have similar ideas and get along and you're in tiny environments and you most of you live together, right? Yeah, three, As roommates. three of us live together. <laughs> so that really says something that you're able to get along really well. What is yeah. the secret to staying together as a band for a decade? Yeah, what's our secret, babe? I don't know, babe. I think maybe <laughs> <just> like... <laughs> We're like diplomatic to a fault. Yeah. I, don't, I think that it's just the friendship has always been more important than even the music has been, <laughs> which uh, it takes us a while to like write and record and like practice. Make decisions. Make any sort of decisions at all because we're like, well, what do you want to do? Well, what do you want to do? Well, what's best for you? Do, do, do. But it's <laughs> yeah. true. Like, I don't really want to do anything by myself. I'm not like, uh, I can't wait to like <laughs> go solo or something. <laughs> we're like family. Yeah, yeah, definitely at this point, family members. I love that. And so have you been on the road during major holidays? Have oh, you spent yeah. holidays together? Uh, well, not so much Christmas, Christmas time. Christmas we're usually spending together here. I meant like the big ones like Arbor Day or like Flag Day. <laughs> oh, Flag Day, we're never apart. Yeah. <laughs> Don't miss a Flag Day. No, never miss That's a Flag Day. That's kind of our special day. But as we all know, family members do disagree on things. I understand there's a little feud as far as candy is concerned. So you love candy, Emily, and Brie, you do not like candy? No, it's weird on tour. Uh, two of our bandmates... Is that em- weird on tour? <laughs> two Two of our bandmates are total candy freaks and they've got like candy falling out of their pockets the whole time. So you're basically candy like special. Hansel and Gretel just leaving a trail of candy yeah. wherever you go. Oh, yeah. You know, those candy wrappers all over the place. Yeah. Candy's so special. Mm-hmm. And it's so fun in every different region. It's all different. And then we went to Europe and that was like. That's pretty fun. Germany. circuiting. And Switzerland. Well, what are your favorite candies? It really depends on what mood I'm in. And what shape my mouth is in. <laughs> Sometimes I eat so much sour candy, I get like like a burn on the top of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Like if you eat toast that's too toasty, like yeah. you kind of ruin the top of your mouth. Which your I mouth. also do pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my mouth gets tore up pretty easily. I guess lemon heads are pretty standard thing that I like to eat a lot. I went through a brief period where I liked, I decided I liked chocolate with like a very high cacao content. Fancy. Like, like 80%. Yeah. I thought, Are you out of that? Uh, no, not really. I like it when noxious. chocolate kind of tastes like kind of like unsweetened dirt. That's what <laughs> like, I was going to say. It kind crazy. of is a little bit yeah. dirty. Do you just not like sweets in general? I like sweets, but candy just seems like a waste of time. Whoa. Yeah. What would you be doing with your candy eating time? I like like a cake. I think me and Emily can agree on that. Oh, yeah. I kind of like jello. That was a confession. (laughs) The tone of a confession. I thought I I was going to get a little more support, but I I didn't. Okay. It's made out of cow hooves. No, it's fine. Hooves. I think they have non-hoof jello. Probably in the kosher section, my section of Safeway, which every time I go to the store, (laughs) I go to the Jewish section just to make sure it's still there. Like, I feel like I'm like a secret shopper. I'm like, mm-hmm. We've got the gefilte and the matzo's like, it's cool. Like my people's stuff has been taken away before. We have to check and make sure like everything's there. Sidebar, in regards to kosher jello, I went online to see if there is such thing as kosher jello. Some websites say yes, some say no. I am not a rabbi, so this is going to remain an unsolved mystery because this is not a jello episode. We already did a jello episode with Jeopardy champ Ken Jennings. So you can go back and listen to that. But right now we're doing a taco cat episode. So we're going to see what these guys want for their last meals. 
If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Taco Cat recently got back from tour, and one of their stops was in Philadelphia, where Brie had a life-changing Philly cheesesteak while she was there. Okay, Brie, what is your last meal? I can't decide on anything, and I was thinking a buffet, but then we were talking about Philly cheesesteaks. Do you want a Philly cheesesteak buffet? Wait, well, our Airbnb host was like, oh, do you know that this is what a Philly taco is? It's pizza with Philly cheesesteak wrapped in it. What? And then you eat it. I missed that part. Oh, yeah, I was still upset. Like a whole pizza that you use as the shell and wrap it around? Yeah, that's so crazy. Maybe I would Is do it that. a cheese pizza? Cheese pizza, maybe mushroom. Maybe pepperoni and mushroom. Emily knows this. Whenever I order pizza, I always try to order double the amount of mushrooms. I'm crazy for mushrooms. Yeah. But it's like in a group setting where everyone's like, I'll just get the normal. And Bree's like, so double mushrooms, everyone? <laughs> it's, like, uh... it's a hard sell. <laughs> I don't know. We should go out for pizza together because mushrooms are my favorite. And I would totally go double mushroom with you. People don't like that. Or mm. I don't like that. Okay, so wait. So this would be then a pizza with double mushrooms. Yeah. And then an entire Philly cheesesteak that's placed on top. Oh, no. It's like wrapped in it. All the cheesesteak is in there. Okay. And but it doesn't have over. a bun. Though. Is it still in bread? No. Or it's just like no, the Philly... pizza. The pizza's the bread, right? Okay, so think? the Philly cheesesteak ingredients are on the pizza. Oh yeah. Okay, because I like to think that it would be the whole sandwich then wrapped in the pizza. You know what the hell? Yeah, it's your last meal. Yeah, <laughs> it's your choice. <laughs> yeah, maybe you just have the sandwich in there and just like you know ch- try your best to get in there. A quick Google search told me that a Philly taco is a real thing, but it's actually a DIY thing. It's not like they're selling this at restaurants. So it was allegedly co-invented by a guy named Jeff Barg in the early 2000s. He was a college student in Philly, and he and a friend went down to South Street, where there's a pizza place called Lorenzo's Pizza, and they sell huge slices. And down the street from Lorenzo's is Jim's Steaks. They make classic Philly cheesesteaks. So what these guys did was they got a big pizza slice, they wrapped it around a Philly cheesesteak, and voila, the concept was born. There are plenty of videos online of people doing this if you fancy a Google. But right now, we're going to move on to Emily's last meal. I'll preface this by saying that Brie and I are both Libras. We have a hard time making decisions, I think we mentioned before. Yeah. But I have a hard time making any decisions related to food because I always want it to be the best. Like, I don't like bad tastes. I don't like too much of the same taste. I'm kind of picky. So when I'm thinking about my last meal, I'm like, 
Well, it can't just be one thing that I like. It has to be a lot of different things. So I'm thinking it'll be some sort of like extravagant buffet. Yeah. So you like a lot of little bites. Yeah. I feel the same way. And I have made up my own restaurant concept called Rachie's Bites, which (gasps) probably would make no money. But you just get a bunch of those Chinese soup spoons. And so you get one large bite of everything. Totally. I always get all the side dishes. I'm a side dish monster. Appetizers. Getting into the kitty menu is really fun when they let you. And it would have to like rotate where there would be salty and then sweet and then salty again and then sweet again. Well, I'm going to force you to pick some specific <laughs> things then. So let's say there's going to be five okay. that go sweet, salty, sweet, salty or whatever. What's up first? Okay. The first thing is this ridiculous dessert that I discovered recently. I don't know if it was on Great British Bake Off, but it's something like the things that they make on there. What's like a layered cake and it's called an Edelweiss cake that's like... <laughs> Some white cake with raspberry with white chocolate with raspberry with white chocolate and just over and over again with like some gel in there. And like, it's really delicious. Then next, just like have to find the best green onion pancake, really into pesto based stuff. Well, wait, the sweet in between that would have to be like a s'more buffet. (gasps) I love where this is going. Yeah, s'more s'more buffet buffet is like the big one where you can make it yourself. There's like a fondue situation. So if it's a buffet, what are the different components that you like? Because, you know, standard is graham cracker, chocolate, marshmallow. Are you talking about additions or substitutions? We're talking like all the different kinds of graham crackers, including chocolate graham crackers and ones with extra cinnamon. There's like artisan marshmallows, too, that you can get. And then just like fondue pots. It's like dark chocolate, white chocolate. Maybe a high cacao content so Brie would share a last meal with me. <laughs> I'd have oh, a bite. An yeah. 80% or something uh, 80, like that. 80 or up. Yeah, get that like dead moth flavor in there. <laughs> dead moth flavor. Dirty s'mores. <laughs> Dirty raisins. <laughs> How do you like your marshmallows done? Because people are very particular on the level of, oh, you know. That's, a, that's so real. Blackness well and on firedness. done. Okay. Just as well done as it can be without just, I mean, sometimes I light it on fire briefly. <laughs> Have you ever replaced the chocolate with another kind of candy? Because I am fond of the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup instead of the Hershey's in a s'more. It's so good. Whoa. I haven't done that. I will replace the graham cracker with Pop-Tarts. Whoa. Oh, my God. Whoa. Oh, my God. A cold Pop-Tart or or toasted? S'mores, Pop-Tarts, and they're toasted. That's insane. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. The marshmallow can be replaced with a peep. (laughs) This is Franken-s'more. You can get really crazy with your s'more. So would you ever do a Pop-Tart with a peep? Oh, yeah, I have. And then what would you have? Yeah, and then... You're a magical person. You can put on top of that, and this is where maybe it gets a little dicey for some people, but it's the (laughs) powdered cocoa mix with the freeze-dried marshmallows Uh in it. Oh, and the peep has to be a cocoa cat. They make those around Halloween. It's like a peep that's chocolate but it tastes like it's it's a seasonal peep yeah it's a seasonal peep it was messy but you know the goo of the marshmallow kind of holds everything together I hope that you know for production's sake this is now your last meal will be this exact s'more <laughs> and it's maybe my favorite thing that anyone has ever said in yay. all of the episodes yay <laughs> oh you're a candy sweet monster yeah yeah you look like candy Oh, thank you. You do. Thank you. Yeah, with your rainbow sweater and your blue hair and your pink tights. What color are your shoes? Sunset. Sunset. Yeah. You are what you eat. True. That's true. (laughs) Later in the show, Emily and Brie will construct the world's most wild and sugary s'more out of items purchased in the radio station's basement convenience store. But first, let's explore the history of the Philly cheesesteak. 
Now, I have to confess that I have never had a cheesesteak before. Producer Aaron is shaking his head. You love Philly cheesesteaks. It's my home turf. I've I've had my body's weight many times over in cheesesteaks. Now, this is my argument for why I've never had one. I haven't been to Philadelphia since I was a kid, and I don't want to have a Philly cheesesteak somewhere else because I'm afraid it's not going to be that good. And then you have a bad version of something, and then you villainize that food. And then when I go to Philadelphia, I'm not going to want to have the real thing. So just like in Clueless, Cher was saving herself for uh, Luke Perry, I'm saving myself for a real Philly cheesesteak. But despite the fact that I've never had one, I still know about Pat's and Gino's. Pat's and Gino's are two different cheesesteak shops in Philadelphia. They are right across the street from each other. They are both prominently featured in Boys to Men's Motown Philly music video, and they both attract all kinds of celebrities. Let's see, we had Drake. He was in Philadelphia performing the uh, night before last. He sent down for 150 sandwiches. Pink, well, Pink didn't eat because we didn't have chicken cheesesteaks, and she should know better. She's from Philly. Clinton, whenever he was in town, before he became a, a vegan, he used to get cheesesteaks. He used to call me on my cell phone. Donald Trump goes to my competitor across the street. Funniest is probably Shaq. When he came, he ate five cheesesteaks when he was there. And Vince Vaughn has uh, three and a half. Both shops are open 24-7 and have insane lines all day, every day. And people have opinions about Pat's and Gino's. One is the best and the other is complete garbage, depending on who you ask. And if you ask Frank Oliveri, Pat's King of Steaks is the best. I am the fourth generation owner of the world famous Pat's King of Steaks in Philadelphia. So what is the history of Pat's? So as the story goes, my great uncle Pat, my grandfather's older brother, and my grandfather were selling hot dogs at the base of the world famous Italian market. The market is the oldest continuously running open air market in the country. So one day he had enough money for himself to um, get a little something, like a little treat for himself and my grandfather for lunch. So he sent my grandfather down to the butcher to get some trimmings of meat that the butcher had. He cooked it up on his hot dog grill, and the condiments at the time were onions. So he put them on an Italian roll with onions, and a cab driver who ate hot dogs every day came up and said, wow, that looks really great. Make me one. So Pat said, I only have enough money for myself to make one, so I'll break the sandwich in half since you, you know, eat hot dogs every day. So he took a bite of the sandwich and he was enamored with it and said, you know what? You should forget about hot dogs. And this is the sandwich you should start making. And that was the invention of the Philly cheesesteak or Philly steak sandwich, I should say. That was back in 1930. And the next year in 1931, Frank's grandfather's brother started selling steak sandwiches through a window in a bar, serving people standing in line on the street. And that's how Pat's was born. So for the uninitiated like me, what is a cheesesteak? A cheesesteak is... The big guys in Philly, including myself, as being the leader, use only sliced ribeye. We don't use any of the chopped top round or the cheaper cuts of meat. So it's a thinly sliced cut of ribeye cooked for, you know, only a few seconds on each side on a grill. And we do with oil, soybean oil. Some other people do. My competitor across the street does it with water. Onions and your choice of cheese, American provolone or cheese whiz. So now cheese whiz being the most popular in Philadelphia, believe it or not. How did this come to be? How did Cheese Whiz find its way onto this sandwich? The first cheese, however, that was put on the sandwich was provolone cheese because we're all a bunch of Italians in the store. The Cheese Whiz came about in 1956, 1957, when my dad found Cheese Whiz and wanted to give somebody a quicker application of cheese, I should say. He kept it hidden on the sign away from his father and uncle so he, he wouldn't get yelled at 
And he would put the cheese whiz on the sandwiches for the customers, and the customers really seemed to enjoy it. Cheese whiz as our number one selling cheese ever. Like we sell more cheese whiz in a year than, than you can fill an Olympic sized swimming pool. With. Hmm. So, did your family then invented the cheesesteak and invented the concept of putting cheese whiz on it? Yes. And also, we're going to take credit for French fries with cheese on them, too, because all of my customers back in the 50s, and my employees, I should say, were getting the French fries at the French fry window and dipping them into the vat of cheese whiz and eating them. And then a customer saw it and said, wow, that looks great. Make me one of those. So we've been selling cheese whiz since the 50s. Your restaurant is so famous and part of the fame is just the vibe and the energy and the fact that you're open 24-7 and how loud it is. And my coworker, who is obsessed with cheesesteaks, says there is like a stress around ordering because you it goes so fast and you get nervous and they don't have time for you. So can you talk about the proper way to order and how prepared you have to be? Sure. Well, it's always one of those things where you have to you have to learn the lingo when you go to different places in order to make the line go easier. So it takes approximately six seconds or less, mostly less, to make a, an individual sandwich. So at any given time on a Saturday night, there could be, you know, 300, 400 people standing in line. We want to make the line go as fast as possible. And we're all cash because if a credit card machine goes down, you're out of business. So um, you have to basically know what you want. So the way the lingo goes, if you want a steak sandwich with or without onions, just a plain steak sandwich, you say, give me one wit, W-I-T, meaning the wit is the onions, or one without, without onions. So steak wit, steak without, and then the same thing, cheese wit, cheese without. So did this come from like the original way that your relatives spoke? You know, everybody else in the country has an accent. People in South Philadelphia <laughs> are accent, void of accent, as you can obviously hear in my voice. I sound like middle America, don't I? Yes, you sound like you have that transatlantic, regular TV exactly. accent. Very vanilla. So, <laughs> you know, we try to quicken things up here at the store. So we actually dropped the H off of with to make it easier. So it's wit. It came out of necessity of trying to make the line move as fast as possible. So you were saying there's literally three or 400 people that could be in line at one time? Oh, all, day, all yeah. And yeah, 24 hours a day. It's It's insane. It's truly... It's truly insane. In a, in a 24-hour period, we can sell anywhere, depending on the time of the year, 2,500 sandwiches to, you know, 5,000 sandwiches a day. Wow. All right. So that's Pat's. And then there is Gino's, which opened more than 30 years later in 1966. The current owner is Gino Vento. He is the son of the original owner. And he says his dad purposely opened up the shop across the street from Pat's for the challenge and the competition. And your dad's name is Gino too, correct? No. Oh, no? His name is Joe. Oh. I was actually named after a wall, basically. Dad wanted to, when he wanted to open up the business in 66, you know, I wasn't even thought of at the time um, because I was born in 71. Uh, There was already a Joe Stakes, a Jim Stakes, an Anthony Stakes. Like, they all had these names. You know, on a wall in South Philly, there was Gino, but it was G-I-N-O which was like the hamburger. So dad's looking at it at the wall and he's like, you know what? I'm going to change the I to an E and name it Gino. And then he named it Gino's. And then when I was born in 71, he named me Gino. And I was like, oh my God, you named me after a wall. I'm like going to school. You know what it was like? I wasn't like Joey, Nikki, Anthony. I was Gino. I was like the oddball. I got picked on and teased. But now my name opens doors. Is there any personal animosity between the different shops or it is all just in good fun? Well, you know, Joe Vento and my dad, Joe Vento's not here anymore, but my dad will be 80 in November. They all grew up together. My mother, my father, Joe Vento and his wife all grew up together. They were all friends. So 
in the daytime when my father was working and Joe Venter were working, they didn't speak or look at each other. But if they happened to be out in the same restaurant together, which happened often, they would sit together and have dinner together. So that was something that kind of almost trickled down to me a little bit where I kind of, you know, helped the media feed the fuel of the animosity that really did not exist. But it was just the best thing for business. But Gino now, he and I are friendly. And there's another guy in Philadelphia, Tony Luke. He's friendly. Actually, we Gino just moved out. All three of us live in the same building. We lived in the same building. The one that you're in right now? Yes, the one I live in right now. So at any time, the elevator just smells like some kind of meat. <laughs> it smells like some kind of meat and onions. <laughs> so I'm imagining like when you were a baby and your mom breastfed you, like Cheese Whiz was coming out of her breasts. And now if <laughs> they were to cut you open, you just have Cheese Whiz in your veins. Like you've been eating this forever, right? I've been eating it since I was in her belly. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know if I can get that that that, that image of cheese was coming out of my mother's breast. Now. You just seem like the kind painful. of painful. I know. You. I'm sorry to talk about your mom's wow. boobs. <laughs> I'm going to get every penny out of therapy this week. <laughs> it's your fault. You have the kind of personality that makes it seem like it's okay to talk about your mom's boobs. I'm sorry. Uh, you have, yeah, you have. Yeah. <laughs> there is one big difference between Pat's and Gino's, and it has nothing to do with the sandwiches themselves. Funny fact is we're uh, supposedly, I got told, that we're the only place in the country that uh, serves Pepsi and Coke. And we have both machines in our in our place. Not even Disney World has that. Wait, there's no other restaurant in the country that carries both of those products? No, because with them, you have to have either one or the other. You can't have both. How did you get around it? I'm Gino. And that was Brie McKenna's last meal. But it's not the end of the episode. We still have to get into s'mores and all of their components. Plus, Emily and Brie will construct a sugar bomb monster s'more out of convenience store foods. We'll be right back. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. S'mores are a truly American food. I never really thought about this before. And when I was living in Japan, I went on a camping trip with my coworker who was from New Zealand. And when we were getting everything ready, I was like, well, of course we have to get stuff for s'mores. And he was like, what's a s'more? Like, what do you what do you mean? What's a s'more? So I had to go to this foreign grocery store to try to get the ingredients. Uh, they did not have graham crackers. So I ended up just getting English biscuits. They did not have plain marshmallows. Strangely, they had Darjeeling tea and coffee-flavored marshmallows, which I thought were going to be disgusting and were both delicious, especially the tea. It didn't have a fake kind of flavor. It was like this nice kind of smoky tea-infused marshmallow. Uh, And they didn't have Hershey's, so we just got some other kind of chocolate. But watching an adult man eat a s'more for the first time was just so delightful. He His whole face lit up and like he'd never roasted a marshmallow. It was so fun. And that's how I realized that s'mores are from America. But where did the s'more come from? It's actually a little fuzzy. 
But we get all the info we can from Jeff Miller, who teaches a food and culture class at Colorado State University. We first hear about it in, in a cookbook in the 1920s where it's called s'mores, two different words. Who invented it is one of those things that's kind of lost in the mist of history. But if you look at what's out in the market just prior to this recipe coming out, we have things like Malamars and Moon Pies. So we have something that has a cakey, cookie kind of base and then a marshmallow filling, and then it's enrobed in chocolate. Maybe somebody's saying, how can I make this at home? Because there's always somebody wants to make the home version of it. And at that point, uh, we start to see recipes for the S'more. And then in the Girl Scout handbook, it's been what we call today, which is the S apostrophe M-O-R-E-S. Do you know anything about when people started roasting marshmallows? There's no other candy you would ever roast. It's so strange. I feel like it must have been one of those like drunken late night experimental things that ended up taking off. Could have been the counselors at the camp had a little moonshine after dark and came up with something that cured their munchies. Those drunk Girl Scouts. Always hearing about those drunk Girl Scouts. Counselors anyhow. (laughs) Yeah. So a traditional s'more is a roasted marshmallow and a couple of squares of chocolate sandwiched between two graham crackers. I'm most interested in marshmallows because if you flip over the bag, you know, it's corn syrup and sugar, but the original marshmallows actually came from a plant. Is that right? That's right. Marsh and mallow, two words. The marshmallow is a plant that grows in marshes. And so if you take the root uh, from that plant, you can uh, manipulate it and make an edible tree out of it. Where are these roots found? Well, they're really found all over the world. The first people that exploited them were actually in the Nile Delta, so the swampy marshes there. They're here in the States now as well. When we think of a marshmallow, this big puffy white thing, did that ever actually contain this marshmallow root? Absolutely. Up until the beginning of the 1800s, almost all of them were were created from a root that we confectioners gathered and then uh, manipulated into a lozenge that was then sold in the patisserie stores. So wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that we see that big, soft, puffy marshmallow that we have today. Does the one today taste anything like a marshmallow root? Probably not particularly. The original marshmallows uh, confections were sweet. They had a lot of sugar in them, um, but they were more of a lozenge. It would have been quite firm, and uh, but airy, so when you bit into it, it crumbled. The soft, puffy thing is really much later development. Yeah, let's talk about the soft, puffy thing. So how does one make a big, puffy, white marshmallow like that? What's the process? Today, they take a lot of gelatin and a lot of powdered sugar and a little bit of cornstarch. They essentially take those three ingredients and then just whip them up with a lot, a lot of air, and then they extrude them. And so the more air and and the more gelatin is in there, you get that squishy, puffy thing that we think of today. So the most popular mainstream bag of marshmallows, it often says jet puffed on it. What does that mean? Uh Uh, The jet puff comes from the extrusion part. Originally, these are all whipped by hand and then put into molds. Um, So now they use an extrusion process, uh, much like you'd make extruded breakfast cereals. And so jet puffed refers to this idea that it's, it's almost like shot out of a jet engine. And that process is what pumps all that air into it. Okay, let's talk about the graham cracker because I feel like this has a very interesting history. I love the graham cracker. Graham is such an interesting character. Sylvester Graham was a student at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and he was thrown out of school for committing a sexual assault. And what that exactly means, 
I have not been able to ascertain from my research, but he was thrown out of school and basically sent home to ponder his, his evil ways. And as he sat at home trying to figure out what would make him do such a horrendous thing, he came to the idea that uh, it's because people probably ate too much meat and all that meat consumption gave them these unnatural, untamable sexual urges. Sounds about right. So he set out to make uh, a food that would be nutritious and delicious and vegetarian so that people wouldn't eat all this meat. He also was somewhat of a mama's boy. And if you read his memoirs about growing up, his fondest memory was being in the, in the kitchen with his mother when she made homemade wheat bread. And so his real start was taking wheat bread, which he justified from Bible quotations that you're not supposed to separate the wheat from the bran, that, that God intended us to eat wholesome wheat bread. And so he starts out to make a snack from the whole wheat, or a bread from the whole wheat, but he's also looking for something that's shelf-stable, so it winds up very much like a cracker. And so was the original graham cracker not sweet at all? It sounds like it was kind of a health food. It was a health food. I think the original graham cracker was probably more like a wasa bread or something like that. It was very crispy because at some point Kellogg takes the cracker and grinds it up to use as a basis for cereal. So it was originally a very dry, so it'd be shelf stable. So it could be shipped around the country and shipped around to uh, his followers. And it was not sweet at all. He was very much against sugar and white flour and all those things. So I think he's probably rolling in his grave thinking that the thing that he is known for and remembered for today is essentially some kind of candy. Speaking of candy, there is obviously the chocolate component of the s'more. And honestly, I just don't have the time to get into the history of chocolate or how it's made. It could seriously be a 10-part Ken Burns documentary series. But I will tell you that chocolate is super ancient. It dates back to about 350 BC. The Mayas and the Aztecs in South and Central America transformed the cacao into a drinking chocolate. But just like the graham crackers, the original chocolate preparation was not sweet. Cacao is naturally very bitter, and they didn't have processed sugar at the time. So it wasn't until the late 1800s that you could buy an actual bar of chocolate. All right, so chocolate, marshmallows, graham crackers, that is the original s'more. But Emily Noakes took some huge liberties when she squished peeps and hot chocolate powder between two s'more Pop-Tarts. So I felt inspired by that. I invited Emily and Bree to come down to the little convenience store in the basement of the radio station to use any of the items that they found there to create the s'more monster of their dreams. So the first thing that Emily chose was a pack of brown sugar Pop-Tarts. Those are not ideal flavors, but that's okay. So what would be an ideal Pop-Tart flavor? Uh, s'mores. She also selected a Hershey bar with almonds, a single serving cup of Lucky Charm cereal, and a packaged Rice Krispie treat. The base of this is going to be the Pop-Tarts. Are you going to um, toast it or not? We're going to toast it. And Brie, right now, what are you doing? I'm sorting uh, marshmallows out of this um, Lucky Charms. What are these? Is that supposed to be a rainbow? It looks like a car. And then the pink, what is that, a balloon? Yeah. Yeah, okay. The next step was unwrapping the Rice Krispie Treat and microwaving it for a little bit. The microwaving of the Rice Krispie Treat worked really well. Wow, it gets really buttery when it's warm. I'm going to put the chocolate on now underneath it. So then I think we're going to put a little touch of powder on top. 
whoa, that's a lot of chocolate powder from a Swiss Miss packet. So we had toasted brown sugar Pop-Tarts sandwiching a warm Rice Krispie treat embedded with freeze-dried Lucky Charm marshmallows. This was topped with the melted Hershey bar with almonds in it and a sprinkle of powdered hot chocolate mix. Is it good? Mm -hmm. Of course it's good. (laughs) It was good. I thought it was going to be a sugar nightmare. I mean, you just can't use that many processed foods at once and expect it to be good. But after the ladies left, I continued to eat the weird s'more. So that's a sign of how good it was. And that was Emily Noakes and Brie McKenna's last meal. Taco Cat has a show on Halloween night at Chop Suey in Seattle, and they're starting a little West Coast tour in November that takes them everywhere from Bellingham, Washington, to Portland, Oregon, to my beloved college town in Chico, California, all the way down to Southern California. You can buy their music and concert tickets and merch at tacocat.com.com. So the first part is D-O-T-C-O-M.com. Those guys and their jokes. Thanks to Jeff Miller, Associate Professor at Colorado State University, and a big thanks to Frank E. Oliveri, owner of Pat's King of Steaks. I got one more thing. Oh! Somebody wants to try an original Pat's King of Steaks that go to our website, patskingofsteaks.com. We do overnight delivery of Pat's King of Steaks right to your door. And Gino Vento, owner of Gino's. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, theme music by Prom Queen. And a special thanks to Hardly Art for permission to play the Taco Cat tunes. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. First, so wait, oh God, what am I doing? God, my mouth is full of marbles.